Ammo tassa bhagavato arhato asamma sambuddhassa. Ammo tassa bhagavato arhato asamma sambuddhassa. Ammo tassa bhagavato arhato asamma sambuddhassa. Buddhaan dhammaan sanghaan namatsaami. So I feel it's a bit strange giving a talk, not having meditated and sitting in an armchair. Uh, it's not going to be a talk for armchair Buddhists, this is a talk for <laughs> serious practitioners. <laughs> uh, so, uh, for those who don't know me, my name's Ajahn Kalyano. Uh, 16 verses as a monk, 16 years as a monk. So I'm a kind of monastic adolescent, really. <laughs> and, uh, sink and keep sinking. Yeah, it's a bit of a monastic adolescent, and uh, when when we were sitting over there with Janamaro uh, a few weeks ago, and we were planning who was going to give these talks, then I saw one on the list saying why celibacy, and I uh, thought, well, uh, why not give this one a try? Because it's something that people don't talk about very much, but there's also there was a kind of a uh, but there was a kind of teenage energy, I suppose, about me offering to do this. Because <laughs> I thought, well, people, I don't think people really know the true story here, you know. Or at least my true story about, you know, why I practice celibacy and why, or why in the Thai forest tradition we practice celibacy, monks and nuns. And I kind of feel that, you know, I've been around this tradition a long time, uh, many years. So about 20 years ago or more, I was kind of sat at the back there and listening to Ampur Samedo. And uh, <clears throat> no one's ever really spelt it out to me, as far as I remember, you know, what celibacy is about, why we do it in the Thai forest tradition. So I thought I'd have a go at that, but it's not a particularly easy one. <laughs> so uh, I do my best. So the, the kind of typical way of practice in Thailand then is that is Samatha Vipassana. So uh, the way that you practice is that you practice meditation for a long time and very intensively until you experience what's called Samadhi, where the mind lets go of the things of the senses and goes inside. You have experience of the mind itself and then after that, uh, what you're recommended to do is to contemplate the body. And if they, all the Thai masters will say that this is the path to liberation, to do these two things, one after the other. And this is the classic path. You, you practice uh, contemplation of the body in samadhi. So uh, this is an important thing to realize because 
uh, practicing, doing this kind of practice in a very particular kind of state of mind, so not an ordinary state of mind. And I think this can help to kind of assure people, reassure people, or dispel some of peop some people's uh, reservations about body contemplation, which can otherwise seem a rather weird thing to be doing. Particularly if you take the mind and look inside, this can seem like a rather strange thing to be doing, rather life-denying or uh, negative thing to be doing. And yet what's recommended in this practice is to do this in a very particular way, uh, rather in a very particular state of mind, and towards a particular goal, uh, for a particular purpose. Uh, a purpose which isn't one which uh, criticizes the body or sensuality, um, but is uh, looking for something longer lasting. So essentially, the, the Buddha is not, doesn't have any criticism for the things of the world, uh, but he sees that they're impermanent. And his quest uh, throughout his life was to find permanence, to discover the deathless. Uh, this is why he left home, left his wife and child, uh, because he saw the impermanence of things and wanted to find what was permanent. So as well, this mind as well as being in a particular state, a, a contemplating mind, is looking for the mind, this mind is looking for permanence and happiness. Uh, and uh, the way we do this is that we, we examine very closely uh, what we take to be ourselves, uh, starting with the body. And uh, when we do this and we we can go through, we go through each element, go through each part of, of what we take ourselves to be and examine it to see whether this is permanent or impermanent. If we do this, then what we see very clearly is wherever else we might think or feel about these things, we see them as impermanent very clearly. And then the, uh, the significance of the... I'm going to keep wanting to lift it up now. <laughs> uh, where was I? Uh, oh, yes, and then the particular significance of the body uh, as an object of investigation is that the body is the one part of our experience in which we can see impermanence in the present moment. Uh, this is a very significant thing. So if we're observing the, the phenomenon of the mind, uh, then we see things arise and cease in the mind, but we're not seeing impermanence in the present moment, in the here and now. We're seeing impermanence over time. And uh, this is something that uh, a lot of practitioners and academics have puzzled over alike for, for very many years. Uh, the Abhidhamma theorists who came up with this theory of mind moments. There's all been kinds of all kinds of theor theoretical, philosophical ways to try to get around this fact that 
impermanence can only really be seen apparently over time and not in the present moment. And yet if we look at the body, uh, we, particularly if we look inside the body, uh, then we see our own mortality in the present moment. And to the untrained mind or to somebody who doesn't understand this kind of practice, this can be a very seem like a very daunting thing. Or for the psychologist, I was a, I was one of these. Incidentally, I was a psychologist, and uh, a lot of psychologists would believe that uh, it's impossible for somebody to to realise to see their own mortality. Uh, uh, the mind's defence mechanisms prevent us from doing this. Uh, this isn't the case, or it may only, it isn't the case of a, of a trained mind or a mind that's experienced samadhi in particular. So, if we if we're practicing and we're practicing meditation, I think we can see, at least uh, not initially perhaps, but over the years, then uh, we can see how. The hindrances, the things that enter into our minds to hinder our meditation practice, seem to be coming from the body. This can be a bit of a mystery. Now, why is this? Uh, seem to be centered there. And yet, over years, it can seem as though it becomes almost apparent that they're like a kind of smokescreen. Uh, like we're, we're, what we're seeing coming up, what's coming up into our minds is a kind of smokescreen. Uh, to prevent us seeing the realities of the body. If we cut through that smoke screen, and we see through the hindrances, then this is what we see. And in Buddhist terms, then, this is the highest source of wisdom. Uh, so the highest source of wisdom isn't in the books, not uh, leather-bound on the shelf. It's uh, through bearing the body in mind. This is considered to be the highest source of wisdom, or bearing our own mortality in mind. Uh, if we're strong enough, and we have to be strong enough, don't we? You know, so you see well, the reaction that people have if they have a terminal diagnosis, say. You know, somebody's very strong, has a very strong mind, and then it can, then can bring them alive. You know, all of a sudden, uh, they're living each day like it was their last. It really bring people alive. Or it can get you down, can't it? Or make your life seem worthless or meaningless. Uh, but this can actually be the time when we can discover the real meaning of our lives. Uh, conversely, if we see the, the true nature of the body. And so this is all to do with perception, isn't it? Perceptions of the body. And then... Uh, of course, uh, sexuality also is to do with perceptions of the body, you know, a particular perception of the body, uh, uh, one that of one of attraction, uh, one of seeing um, uh, certain aspects of the body. And this is what happens around uh, sexuality. We see in particular aspect, and following that. So this is how the celibate life then, it supports the, the spiritual practice and takes it deep in this way uh, to establish a different kind of perception, 
but in a very particular kind of state of mind. So this is what we say is the highest purpose of celibacy, the celibate life, is this kind of contemplation. And yet, uh, you know, it's plain if you live in a monastery or uh, you just visit one, that there'll be other reasons or other benefits for this uh, element of monastic life, monastic form. Uh, and to get perspective on one's sexual drive in a temporary way, or even to hold these kinds of perceptions that I've been talking about in a temporary way. So in Thailand or Sri Lanka, for example, then lay people go to the monastery once a fortnight and practice in this way. Uh, because they see that they see the transient nature of perception. You know, this perception is not a fixed thing. Uh, so you could go to the monastery and uh, look at things in a different way while you're there. Uh, just the same as a doctor, say, I might look at the body in a different way while they're at work. You know, they go home, they're back to the normal. Then we can also just use these kind of perceptions. Uh, temporarily for a particular purpose. So particularly Thailand, you know, Thailand being a people tend to be, it's quite a sensual race, uh, exuberant sensual race. Uh, and then it'd be quite normal for, for somebody to go to a monastery to practice uh, this kind of body contemplation to avoid jumping in bed with their neighbor's wife or something like that. <laughs> Skillful means. Put the brakes on. Uh. And for me, coming here as a layman, I, you know, I remember years back uh, coming, having my first taste of, of this kind of life and uh, just realizing it, how peaceful, simple uh, life in a monastery can be, a bit of space. A kind of sense of opting out, you know, opting out of all the issues around sensuality. But also a great surprise for me, I mean, I must admit, you know, I tended to see, even though I've been coming here for a long time, and I still saw that, uh, I, to me, the sexual drive, I thought that it was wired in. You know? <laughs> so this is kind of biology. You know, I can't go, how am I going to go against biology? <laughs> I thought, I think, at least. And all these kind of assumptions in my mind, which is the kind of assumptions that I'm, I'm out to challenge in, in you today. You know, I realized over a long history of coming here, that I had all these kinds of assumptions about this kind of thing. And that uh, over time, these would get peeled away uh, one way or another. And I had only experience, experiences in my own life. Uh, one I think was uh, most significant was when and I've been doing quite a lot of meditation and qigong. Uh, I'll go on a bit to talk in, in a little while about body work like yoga and qigong perhaps. 
these kinds of practices. But uh, I've been practicing Tai Chi and Qigong quite a lot <coughs> and uh, was feeling extremely happy and energetic, bright. And at the time I was going to an acupuncturist and uh, I was saying to my acupuncturist, look, I just feel fantastic, you know, I feel better than I've ever felt in my life. And the only thing that seems to mess all this up is having sex, you know. And uh, my acupuncturist turned to me and he said, well, is it worth it then? <laughs> and that stopped my mind completely when he said that, I have to say. <laughs> It stopped my mind completely because I realized, you know, there's another moment where you realize uh, uh, what assumptions are there in your own mind. But I hadn't really questioned this one uh, to any depth, really. You know, even though I sat in talks like this, I'd look at the monks and think, well, these people must be something so special. Uh, uh, It's like that. I'd never questioned it in my own mind. You know, I thought you must have to have some kind of really special experience or vocation to be a monk. Uh, you couldn't possibly still be struggling with these things. <laughs> but that comment really made me sit up, and it wasn't a, it was in no way a moralistic or judgmental comment, was it? It was just valuing something else. Uh, is it really worth it then? And at that moment, looking at looking at the situation in my life, although, no, it wasn't worth it. I couldn't deny it. So I started to really fundamentally question this one at that point, I think. And this brings up an important point about how how this is a natural path, or how this thing can kind of come around naturally. Uh, that uh, the Buddha would say that we we give up the the uh, pleasures of the household life based upon the pleasures of the renunciant life. So it's this way round. Uh, so he doesn't encourage us to be idealistic and say, "Well, I, you know, I'm going to become more spiritual. I really want to become more spiritual, so I'm going to." to grip my teeth and give up sex. <laughs> it's not like that. You know. it's, uh, it's the other way around. You, know, that you, you give up the pleasures of the household life based upon the pleasures of the renunciant life. That's the natural path. Uh, so at that moment, you know, what my acupuncturist was showing me was this natural path. You know, as you develop your cultivation of the heart uh, to a certain point where you're, you're starting to get good results you're starting to feel very happy energetic uh, then there can be this natural trade-off you know that you, you start to turn away from sensuality yes again it's very different and so all of this is very different to the way that I'd looked at it in the past. Uh, or I hadn't really looked at it, actually. <laughs> uh, you don't really have to look at anything, do you? You don't have to look in order to have these kind of underlying assumptions. It's more if you don't look that you have underlying assumptions about things. So in this way, then, uh, 
And celibacy becomes a very much a positive choice rather than a sense of running away from something or trying to get away from something. Um, and it can seem, like I was talking about the, the acupuncture, it can seem like you gather this kind of energy within. Uh, so in those days, uh, when I was doing this Tai Chi, I had this kind of yogic rationale for this whole process, you know, by you're not by not your energy not going out and you're gathering your energy within uh, this kind of thing, or you're kind of learning to re-channel your sexual energy into a different kind of energy. All these kinds of rationales, which uh, well, a lot of the part of the way that I entered Buddhist practice was through these things. They're all very positive. Uh, positive way in. And yet, uh, all these years down the line, this is quite a few years down the line, I think about it, 20-something, then the rationales start to fall away or they start to change. It's beginning to see things in a different way. And actually, it was only when I went to Thailand, I went to... to, uh, what Mark Jan to meet Ajahn Anand, who's a disciple of Lumpur Cha. And uh, I was quite anxious by then to ask him about Tai Chi and Qi Kung. So I'm anxious to ask this uh, great master. And feeling a bit insecure about it, thinking he would you know, he'd probably think this is all just rubbish and you know, just uh, attachment to the body or something. You know. uh, but no, he didn't. I, I talked to him about Qigong and uh, he turned to me and he said, oh yes, uh, playing with palang, he said. Now, I'll just try and explain to you what that means. Uh, uh, palang is the kind of, uh, is samadhi really, it's the kind of um, manifestation of the qualities of samadhi, so brightness of mind, this kind of thing. Uh, so the way he saw Qigong was playing with palang, playing with your samadhi. And uh, when I heard that, I realized that I finally made sense of something that I'd been trying to make sense of for a very long time. Because I'd had this, this kind of energetic model of what was happening. You know, some kind of energy that was happening. Uh, oh either coming from outside, a kind of Tai Chi, channeling the universe's energy, or uh, the energy inside, kind of more yogic chakra kind of rationale, and all this buzzing around in me. And I was always been wondering, well, how does this fit with letting go? You know, uh, does it really fit with letting go, this kind of cultivation of an energy? Mm. I feel like you kind of feel like going in two directions. I did. I felt like I was going in two directions, Uh, and yet to see things in this new way, to see this energy as a kind of manifestation of samadhi or of the pure mind, uh, then sorted it all out for me. Uh, So from then on, you know, to see this kind of phenomenon as the brightness of the mind, the mind seeing the mind. Uh, the mind conjoined with space, the brightness of a mind conjoined with space. 
because then, if you see it like that, then you see the connection between these energies and letting go. Yeah, if the mind lets go of the body uh, through dispassion, then there's a brightening, a brightening of the mind. Now that I previously took to be an energy, but now I could see, yes, this is a brightening of the mind. Uh, so that's the way in which uh, in my appreciation of that, of these things has changed over the years, and yet also you would say that now this, this mind is also not a, uh, me. And perhaps this is another assumption there. You know, I was thinking, oh, there's these energies, they're not, they don't, they seem to have their own track, you know, they're doing their thing, you know, I can cultivate them in this way or that way, one way or another. Uh, so they can't be, they can't be me, you know, they can't be my mind. Uh, and yet I just wasn't seeing clearly, you know, that the, these things, these, these this is kind of emptiness revealed or space revealed uh, through practice. Uh, it's kind of brightness. Uh. Oh, so I did I think I did a better better of a job explaining that than I thought. Uh, it's also only taken half the time I thought it was going to take. <laughs> uh, I think a few stories or something. <laughs> no, you haven't? Okay, well maybe... Uh, maybe you need, I, I, that's possibly the case, you need uh, some questions early on perhaps, or I can try and put it another way or something, uh, try and come from another angle on it. Yes, it's not an easy thing to understand. Okay. Uh, to, to try and come at it from another angle perhaps, you could say that the, the Dhamma is there uh, in the relationship between mind and body, and yet uh, as you go on and practice, then uh, you take a different definition of the word mind. You know, I was involved with uh, both psychology and physical therapies when I was younger, so I looked quite a lot at the relationship between the things of the mind and the body. Uh, But actually, to get the full picture, uh, then to see the things of the mind, uh, the body and the emptiness of the mind, is what gives you the full picture. And in some ways, you'd probably say that uh, the emptiness of the mind, uh, in uh, our understanding, Western understanding, we'd probably say that this was the spirit. We might say that... Uh, uh, the spirit, in Buddhist terms, is the emptiness of the mind. So, as we practice, you sit and sit and meditate, and you concentrate on the breath, and you empty the mind. Then you end up with this this bright space, and uh, 
then if, you, if there's a kind of opening of the mind into a bright space in which the body can appear. So a, a change of uh, relationship that we experience uh, in terms of the mind and the body is that we no longer see the mind is in, in the body, we see the body is in the mind. Previously, we might have seen that the, the mind is in the body, or we assume, you know, that there are our uh, mechanistic view that the mind is in the body or in the brain. And if the mind opens into space, and this, this space can encompass the body, and then we see the whole thing in a different way, or perhaps actually we've transformed our existential situation, yeah, actually. Perhaps we're not just seeing in a different way, we've changed things. Now our, our body isn't, uh, our mind isn't in the body, our body is now in the mind, in this bigger, brighter space. So I was trying, as I was trying to describe to you at the beginning, then we're examining the body in a particular uh, state of mind, a mind that's open and bright. So it's not, it's not the same as if you, there are a lot of systems of meditation, then and we start off very early, don't we? Like the um, Vipassana tradition, you sit and you you scan through the body. And yet, if you if you do this, then what you experience predominantly is feeling vedana. If the mind enters into the body, then vedana arises. Uh, all kinds of things arise. Uh, and yet, if if this uh, understanding, appreciation, or in fact reality is turned around and the body exists within the mind, in the space of the mind, uh, then we have, a very, we have a different situation. We have a different relationship to our bodies, our different relationship also to the contents of the mind. And we can see how uh, our attachment to our bodies is the source of all the dukkha, actually, ultimately. This is what we can find out. and This is one thing, this is a fact that perhaps rightly teachers are slow to put forward because it can seem that the body is to blame for suffering. No, it's not at all. It's our attachment to our bodies that is the, is the kind of root uh, cause. If, we could, if the mind becomes detached from the body, uh, then the whole, our whole situation changes, our existential situation changes. And the quality of the mind itself changes, because becomes cool, which doesn't mean, doesn't mean indifferent. Yes. Uh, so another reason why people hesitate, I think, to talk about these kinds of areas is that we're involving states of mind that are rare and difficult to describe and can be easily misconstrued. You know, like a, you know, a state like equanimity, for example, uh, which could, could seem like coldness. Uh, uh, to look on the body in this way could seem cold or callous. <clears throat> if one doesn't understand that 
compassion arises quite naturally along with this kind of wisdom. And he's going, wisdom and compassion go together. And so to see the body in uh, the way it is, uh, then two things arise as two fruits to this practice. Uh, the wisdom, which is what I've been concentrating on up till now, but also compassion arises. Uh, and these are very, very pleasant mind states. So the pleasure of them substitutes for the pleasure of sensuality. And in terms of the, the pleasure of meditation then, it, uh, this uh, the Buddha uh, was suspicious of, uh, like, like a lot of Western practitioners as well, I think. I was talking to someone the other day who was very suspicious of the idea that you sit and you concentrate on your breathing and you kind of get off on it uh, some way or another. I'm rather suspicious of this. It seemed to him to be rather self-indulgent, I think. And uh, I think we could say that the Buddha also uh, was suspicious of these practices and states of mind. Uh, but later realized that this the kind of pleasure that's derived from this kind of thing uh, is a necessary stepping stone away from the pleasure of the senses. when one develops it uh, sufficiently, then one's interest in the pleasure of the senses will naturally uh, diminish. And perhaps a, story, a quick story to tell from the suttas I trying to remember where this was earlier. I wasn't going to bring it up because I couldn't remember the reference, but um, quite an interesting story about uh, one of the kings around at the Buddha's time, whose name I can't remember, uh, whose queen uh, developed her meditation to the point where she no, was no longer interested in him, uh, in, in a, uh, a sexual relationship with her husband. And you would think that the king, at this point, would become extremely frustrated, wouldn't you? <laughs> That's what I thought as I was reading through this sutta. And gosh, yeah, <laughs> she's not going to make herself very popular. Uh, but actually the king in this sutta describes how uh, sexual desire ceased to arise in his mind in relation to the queen. Uh, and she uh, was in this kind of state of mind. It's interesting, isn't it? It kind of works both ways, it seems to work both ways. Uh, so if you don't understand these things, well, I've seen this actually work in, uh, in Thailand, uh, places like that as well, where people develop their meditation uh, and then uh, their marriage takes on a very different flavour. So I've just never seen there be any, any problem or resentment or difficulty around this. Uh, it's another thing that we can assume will happen uh, that doesn't seem to happen. 
Yeah, so these things, this uh, kind of practices and uh, this way of looking at things not being familiar to our culture and way of doing things, it's so easy, isn't it, to have misperceptions about uh, what might happen if... Uh, so many of these things it's a matter of how one takes it on so i'm sure you know there's a there can be a kind of healthy celibacy or an unhealthy one and uh, certainly it uh, springs to mind is another example from the suttas of a uh, sutra in the anguttara nikaya the courtesan where uh, the buddha is is standing there with a group of monks and they're witnessing a scene where where uh, people, a, a group of men, are, are fighting with each other uh, to the point of killing each other, uh, competing for a particular courtesan. And uh, the monks are saying to the Buddha, uh, basically, how stupid it looked to them. You know, what, a, what a stupid thing to do, to kill each other uh, uh, over desire like this, something like that. Uh, and Buddha said, well, yes, the graveyard is full of them, he said. Uh, and then uh, one of the monks says to the Buddha, well, uh, uh, how much better uh, to live a life of virtue? And the Buddha turns to him and says, the graves are full of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Which you can, uh, I think you can take to mean that that monk is living a life of virtue in an in a unskillful way. Uh, he's kind of raising himself above others, isn't he? Uh, you know, pompous monk, perhaps. <laughs> Getting a bit of a teaching from the Buddha. Uh, because it's, uh, it's, this isn't a path of passion, this second path. You know, you're not taking a passionate stand, you're taking a passionate stand against the passions. Now, if you look at it like that, you can see how ridiculous it is. You're fighting fire with fire, aren't you? Uh, very silly thing to do. Uh, the path of dispassion is a cool one. Uh, so if you want to see a, a really fine example of this, particular path or approach. Uh, there are two that I know of actually, quite different characters, Long Paul Liam, who you may have seen or met here when he visited here uh, a couple of years ago, who is an incredibly cool character and seems to be unruffleable. Uh, nobody seems to be able to upset him. It's just the same under all circumstances, whether he's tiling a roof or... Uh, uh, whether he's in front of thousands of lay people giving a talk or whatever, he's the head of the order. He's got 200, 300 branch monasteries and he shows no sign of stress whatsoever. Uh, so you look at this as an example, you can see this, maybe this is an example of how uh, this works, uh, that he's He's practiced very hard at this uh, practice of meditation, body contemplation, 
let go of his attachment to the body and the result is he has no stress in any area of his life any area any other example would be Ajahn Anand in uh, Rayong in Thailand the other monk I know who's gone all the way on this one and um, very totally different from Long Paul Liam actually uh, uh, Ajahn Anand is the happiest man I've ever met he just said He's a bit like Tigger from Winnie the Pooh, you know, just, uh, bouncing around in the forest, <laughs> jumping out on his disciples and <laughs> bouncing them. <laughs> uh. So there's tremendous kind of joy, happiness, sense of liberation that can come uh, from losing one's attachment to the body. Is it's a, a source of so much anxiety to us. Uh, whether we're going to get something to eat, you realize that here we are running around, you know, these, here we are in these bodies running around on this huge big rock flying through space, you know, trying to find enough food to eat, isn't it? Uh, you might take all this for granted in modern age. You know, if we don't find any, somebody's going to come and give us some something. Maybe it's like that, you know, we can't see our real situation uh, because of the comforts of the modern era, uh, which can be another you know, good reason to go off to the forest. Uh, like so, uh, practicing uh, in the forest of Thailand, then having to go up, go without a lot of things. And sometimes you know, my capacity for letting go uh, was seriously uh, pressed. <laughs> if you're sick and you you can't get medicine, uh, somebody just says to you, "Oh well, never mind." <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you mean, never mind? <laughs> uh, oh, there I was. You know, like a year ago, I was there, and uh, it had extremely heavy rain like the year before, and there were a lot of trees falling on the slopes, and the steep slopes. Uh, there I am in my hut at the bottom of a steep slope, uh, looking out of the window and me- trying to measure the distance between the kuti and the big, huge great tree on the slope, and thinking, well, yes, if it keeps raining, yes, that tree could fall down and fall straight on my hut. Would it go through the roof? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Nothing I could do about it. A rain started pouring into the room next door. I, I walked into the room next door. I, in my mind, I just something in me just couldn't accept that it was happening. You know, this can't be happening. It's a perfectly good roof. <laughs> this can't be happening. These things don't happen. You know, and I was running around rescuing my drawings. You know, I've been drawing away. I was running around putting my drawings in Ziploc bags and panicking, thinking, "Oh no, <laughs> my drawings, my drawings." Funny, isn't it? I wasn't thinking, oh, you know, uh, it's only what we get attached to. But this practice uh, gives you uh, perspective on all of these things. Uh, because you see, you see so clearly your situation, your embodied situation, your physicality. Mm. 
so we can start off, you know, like you know, years ago, I think when I, perhaps I started off coming here and thinking, well, yeah, I'll come here and I'll practice and I'll, I'll try and, here I am a human being trying to be more spiritual. You know, that's what I used to think. Can't you know, keep coming and keep meditating and discover my spiritual dimension, become more spiritual. But I think what I've realized over the years is a bit like this uh, realization to do with the, the body and the mind or the mind and the body is that uh, I'm not a human being trying to be more spiritual. You know, I'm a spiritual being. We're all spiritual beings. But we've got a need to become more human. Yeah. Or at least to find a, a use for this human life, this human body. Uh, and to see clearly the relationship between this pure mind, between the mind and the body, like this. You see, this is the opportunity we have, you know, is to, to uh, be a spiritual being and to explore what it's like to have a human body. These are all the possibilities that are opened up when our usual reactions or our automatic pilot uh, is turned off or overcome. You know, normally our automatic pilot is just set to avoid unpleasant feeling and head towards pleasant feeling. Uh, so you know, the, the perception of a, attractive in relation to the body is actually a kind of expectation of pleasant feeling. So we, but we can overcome that automatic pilot, override it through mindfulness. Which I would say I just discovered over the years is not a suppression or a denial of my, of me or, uh, or of anything actually. So if we see it like this, then we're not understanding that, that the initial mechanism is one of perception and that perceptions change and perceptions can be used. We can use a perception. And our perceptions don't have to use us. We can cultivate a perception and use it for a particular purpose if we train the mind. Like using a tool for a particular purpose. In this case, the purpose is liberation, and it's a it's a path to liberation, which is a direct one, which has no uh, nowhere to get lost. Oh, we look at the Satipatthana Sutta. Then the Buddha describes uh, this practice of uh, developing awareness of of who we what we take ourselves to be: the body, uh, thinking, feeling beginning with the body, uh, this kind of combination of contemplation and meditation together. And to my mind, this is something that we can all do. So we might think that the, what I've been talking about so far is a practice for very special people who've, who've uh, developed their minds in a very special way. 
develop samadhi. That we can be developing contemplation and concentration at the same time. We can use the breath as a kind of vehicle to get to know the body, uh, take the mind inside the body in a very peaceful, neutral way. As I realize after talking to Thai teachers who have this path all laid out, how my life just happened to have these kinds of elements in it. You know, I'd, I was uh, practicing physical therapies, doing Tai Chi, so I'd learnt my anatomy, uh, practiced Tai Chi, all these different elements uh, to my life that came together into a different perception of the body, a liberating perception of the body. So I happened upon it. And in some ways there was, a, there was an advantage there because uh, I wasn't trying to get anything with what I was doing. One of the big hold-ups on somebody telling you what to do to get something is that you then become distracted by your efforts to get something. This becomes an obstacle for us trying to get something. rather than letting go. The practice is all about letting go. This is the kind of mechanism or method towards the deepest kind of letting go. This is what the Thai forest tradition says. And there's no way to get stuck. You know, other meditation systems or practice systems can take you in the same direction and yet you can get attached to samadhi or uh, you find yourself in heaven uh, and you don't want to go anywhere else, do you? <laughs> uh. And yeah, this practice can be like bringing heaven down to earth, actually. Uh, which to me is a far more beautiful aspiration. Uh, as well in my mind, and and to aspire to uh, say goodbye to everybody and drift off into the skies. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Bye. (laughs) Uh, More beautiful to be here with my feet on the ground, with my fellow human beings, and with compassion in my heart than uh, up in the sky. And to me, this kind of practice is this is what it can give you this combination of wisdom and compassion, which to me is a fine trade off for the for the life of sensuality. So is that clearer for the lady hiding behind that gentleman over there? (laughs) You got it? Yeah. So there will be an opportunity to ask questions at about 3.15. There'll be a tea break before that. Um, But what I suggest happens now is that we just sit quietly for about five minutes. 
purpose in that being that uh, instead of uh, leaving the talk and then drifting straight into tea, that you have the chance for the talk to to percolate. Uh, you maybe think of questions that you might want to uh, pose me at 3.15. Uh, so as well, I'll leave you now and I'll be back at 3.15. Uh, please uh, go ahead with tea at 3.00.